Five years ago, the BBC took a survey and they found that a majority of people in 27 countries, they took a survey from Serbia to Italy to Chile to the United States, 20, a majority of people felt that their society is divided. Five years later, is the world more divided or less divided? Wars threaten, wars rage. Why is there division in our world? A little more than 50 years have gone by since John Lennon wrote the song, Why Can't the World Just Give Peace a Chance? Of course, it's not just in the world. You, you know what it is to be divided. In your relationships, in your loyalties, in your desires. I mean, what divides us can be as silly as what movie to watch. It can be as serious as, that's not your land, it's our land. It can be as eternal as, he is not God. Yes, he is. Many divisions in the world. One of the basic assertions of the Christian faith is that there's one fundamental division in the world, in spite of all the other divisions, and it is, who is Jesus? Who is he? What did he do? Jesus teaches, Jesus saves, Jesus loves, but we can't ever overlook the fact that Jesus divides. He divides. And that's what we want to consider this morning from John 7 as we continue to work through John's gospel. If you're new to the Bible, John would be in the New Testament, so much more than halfway over into the Bible. And we'll be looking at chapter 7, which is a big number. It'll say 7. And we're going to look through the verses, the small numbers, 25 through 52, 25 through 52. And here's the main point I want you to get at the outset from this, this sermon. One, Jesus divides the world. Jesus divides the world. And that division is the difference between spiritual satisfaction and ruin. That division over Jesus is the difference between spiritual satisfaction and spiritual ruin. So what we're going to do this morning is walk through this chapter in three points, seeing three different realities in this text. And the first one I want you to see is confusion and clarity. Confusion and clarity. Verses 25 through 36. Confusion and clarity. May the Lord give us clarity as we look at his word together. Verse 25. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is, speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. 
Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed, as he taught in the temple, you know me, and you know where I come from. But I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him. And the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me? And where I am, you cannot come. So, to say the least, there's confusion over Jesus. But there's clarity, isn't there, about what the authorities think about Jesus. Verse 25, isn't he the man they seek to kill? And so they were confused why he teaches openly. They wondered, do the authorities know something they're not telling us? Do they know he's the Christ? And so in their confusion, the crowd starts to try to bring themselves to some clarity. Verse 27, but we know where he comes from. And when the Christ appears, we won't know. It was widely held then that no one would know where the Messiah comes from until he suddenly appeared in the world to do his saving work of his people. And so the crowd, clearly influenced by that, is ruling Jesus out. So what's the first issue of confusion? Where does Jesus come from? Where does he come from? Or, because I'm very aware of the several English teachers in the congregation. From where does Jesus come? From where does Jesus come? Now, when you read John's gospel, it's filled with irony. Irony. What's on the surface, what appears to be the case, not the case. In one sense, they know where Jesus comes from, don't they? Bethlehem. In another sense, ultimate sense, they do not know. But if you've read John's gospel to this point, you know. Because at the very beginning of this gospel, John takes you backstage before all of the drama that will unfold on stage begins. And he's letting you in on what is key to understanding this entire story about Jesus that Jesus is the Word and was in the beginning with God and Jesus was God. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. The life was the light of men. 
John discloses all of this at the very beginning. Jesus is not so quick to disclose himself to people. So Jesus can say honestly, verse 28, you know where I come from. He's bringing clarity in one sense, but there's confusion in another. And he's saying, there's far more to me than where I come from. Verse 28, I've not come on my own accord. He who sent me is true, and you do not know him. Not where he comes from, but from whom he comes. The one who sent him is true. He means the Father is the reality behind his coming. Whether you're confused about that or not, it doesn't change the reality. And he's very clear, isn't he? You do not know him. How does he know that? He knows that because they do not recognize Jesus as the son. They know where he comes from, Bethlehem or perhaps Capernaum, Galilee, where he had been living with his family. They don't know from whom he comes. And eternity hinges on knowing who Jesus comes from. That's the way to ultimately understanding where Jesus comes from as the man who came down from heaven. So to discern whether someone is converted, whether someone is a Christian, whether you really know Jesus, you need to consider their life, their loves, whether they love the church, Jesus' disciples, but from Jesus' own teaching, you must discern whether they confess or deny the Son. If the crowd does not know the Father, they do not know the Son, and vice versa. So Jesus is clarifying to the crowd who the true God is, what he's like, and it's only by knowledge and faith in this God that one knows the true and living God. So John, who writes this gospel, it's clear it was from the teaching of Jesus that he would write in 1 John 2, no one who denies the Son has the Father. And positively, you must confess the Son to have the Father. And we live in a region where there's much confusion about the Son. And we fail in our mission and in the missionary task if we are not clear about the Father and the Son. Jesus was. We can't lower doctrinal guardrails. In declaring the gospel, you must make the whole truth about Jesus known. You must bring clarity where there is confusion. It's unloving to anyone to know the very point of their confusion or their contradiction of any idolatrous system and to not bring clarity at that exact point. Worse, it leads to false conversions. It's not just the idea of having faith that matters. It is the object of faith that matters. If one does not recognize the Father and the Son, they do not know God. Because salvation depends on entrusting yourself to the Son. 
Why doesn't Jesus just come out and say it? Why does he let them go on in this misunderstanding? Well, in one sense, if you're an adult in any capacity, you know at times you relate to little children differently. You, you understand, I hope you understand, almost intuitively that there's certain things we can handle better at certain stages in our lives. And that goes to a whole range of things, doesn't it? I mean, children try to listen into their parents' conversations. If you don't know that we know that, children, we know that. How often are they listening and they say, what did you say? Mom says, dad's just talking about something at work. What? Tell me. Oh, he's just talking about some of the bad things that happen sometimes. And then you're doing all you can to change the subject because you know they've heard something they weren't supposed to. Jesus carefully, slowly discloses his identity according to the time of the Father. God didn't just reveal everything at once in Scripture. He did it progressively, slowly. That's what Jesus is doing. He's revealing according to the timing of the Father so they may know where he comes from. They do not know from whom he comes. There's a lot of confusion. The authorities are very clear about what they want to do with Jesus. Look at verse 30. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Now that is an astonishing sentence to me. The religious leaders in that day had something that was close to what you might call a a temple police force. That's the best way I can describe it. They were Levites who were charged to keep order in the temple, and they actually had the authority to arrest in matters of Jewish law. But they cannot touch Jesus because his hour had not yet come. So in this gospel, Jesus' hour is the climax of his ministry. It is his arrest It's his trial, it's his crucifixion, it is his death. And Jesus knew he would not fail in his mission to make it to that hour. Because as the one sent by the Father, the Father would protect him and uphold him until the hour of his agony. In one sense, in one sense, no one laid a hand on Jesus because of all kinds of different reasons. I bet they were fearful of the crowd. I wonder if they had lack of evidence. I wondered if they feared they would stir up a riot riot and so get themselves in trouble with the Romans. But in the ultimate sense, they did not lay a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. God rules every moment. The true God who is, is not uninterested in the details of our world. Do you realize he was sovereign down to the very hands of those who wanted to arrest Jesus? Here is the Father thousands of years ago, long before we're on the scene of history, working down to the detail of hands to accomplish your salvation before you were born. Why would you not trust this father with the circumstances of your life right now? You're trusting in Jesus Christ today. 
Think right now about whatever it is you do not trust him with in your life, in your family, in your workplace, in your future, with your children, maybe kids, it's the friends at school, maybe it's something else. Now, I want you to reason from what is greater. No one laid his hands on Jesus because his hour had not yet come. That's God's work in your salvation. Down to the lesser. Your circumstance. The details of your life. You don't have to give in to worry. You don't have to fear. Why? Because the Father's sovereignty wonderfully extends down into that detail. And for you who trust in Him, whatever is confusing you, whatever you're perplexed about, you can be certain He is working for your good, even if you will not see it all until eternity. Be careful not to complain against God's providence in your life. To believe in your heart you are wiser or you know better than God with that. God never misses a detail. Everything in your life right now has been ordered by God the Father who is eternally good down to details. If there was a circumstance that could stop, there was no circumstance that could stop God's salvation plan, nothing's going to stop his good plans and purposes for you in Christ. John and Mary Payton went to evangelize the new Hebrides people in the mid-1800s. If you're familiar with them, you will know these people were known as savage cannibals. And when they went, uh, they knew many struggles, many struggles. Uh, Payton's wife and baby boy died not long at all after he arrived there. It wasn't also too long on when he was literally surrounded by armed men and a chief who intended to take his life. He thought he would die, and he audibly committed his body and his soul to Jesus Christ. And then he started to rebuke them for how wicked they were. And they relented. They didn't kill him. Some years later, he and a friend were again surrounded by raging natives. And this is what he wrote famously. My heart rose up to the Lord Jesus. My peace came to me like a wave from God. I realized that I was immortal till my master's work with me was done. The assurance came to me that not a musket would be fired to wound us, not a club prevail to strike us, not a spear leave the hand in which it was held vibrating to be thrown, not an arrow leave the bow or a killing stone the fingers without the permission of Jesus Christ, who is all power in heaven and on earth. He knew the God of John 7. He knows the God revealed in Jesus Christ. No one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. We don't know how Jesus escaped exactly. We just know why. God orchestrated to the details for the good of his people and the advance of the gospel, the preservation of the Son. Some wanted to arrest him. And so strangely, many, verse 31, believed in him. Reasoning that when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this? 
As I was thinking about this, I thought, what would it have been like to try to discern, is this the Messiah in real time? There was division over Jesus. He was an enigma, mysterious. But in all this confusion, there's clarity. Some are convinced they must arrest him. Others, they were compelled by some kind of belief, whether genuine, would only be proven when he was lifted up on the cross. Some believed. Both understood. No one confused over what he was claiming. Confusion, clarity about where Jesus comes from, but also where Jesus is going. Where is he going? That's what he moves to, beginning in in verse 33. I will be with you a little longer. Then I am going to him who sent me. You'll seek me. You will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. And so what's their problem? They cannot discern spiritual reality. They want to know, where are you going to go? Are you going to go to the dispersion and you're going to teach the Greeks? What do you mean, where you're going? We cannot come. They think they will find him. This is ironic. In only a matter of months from this moment, in the ultimate sense, he is going to the dispersion. He will teach the Greeks, the Gentiles, because he will be raised and ascended to the Father where they cannot come. Through his apostles, through the church, he will be named, he will be worshipped in the dispersion. But the religious authorities will not find him there. Ironically, because he will have been raised from the very death, their hands brought about. Ascended to the Father, where he is ultimately going. They do not understand where he comes from, so they do not understand where he will go. The reason they are ultimately confused is because they do not know and they do not do the will of the one who sent Jesus. They seek their own glory, not God's. They think they have him all figured out and they want to arrest him. But in their heart of hearts, they know he remains a mystery, an enigma. What about you? Confused or clear about Jesus? If you're a Christian, I want to press you to grow in the knowledge and the person and work of Christ. The more you are anchored in deep doctrinal truth about Jesus Christ, the better you are equipped and able to worship Him in spirit and truth. The better you are protected from teaching or ideas that fall short of what is revealed in Scripture. The better equipped you are to make Him known to the world. I mean, we really do live at a time in history when we have an embarrassment of riches, of teaching, sound teaching, to grow in our knowledge of Christ. The church has been doing this work for centuries. And so our fundamental task as a disciple of Jesus is to know Jesus, to not be tossed to and fro about different teaching. So stretch yourself. Invest in reading substantive work that pushes you to understand the person and the work of Christ more. Move from the shallow waters to deeper waters and ballast, bring weight and stability to your own ship. Move from confusion to clarity. The next thing we see in this passage is 
the spirit and satisfaction. The spirit and satisfaction. Verses 37 to 43. The spirit and satisfaction. Beginning in verse 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures have said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. When they heard these words, some of the people said, This really is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, It's the Christ to come from Galilee. Has not the Scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. It's the last day of the Feast of Booths or the Festival of Tabernacles. Uh, this is foreign to you. It was not foreign to them. Every year in the Jewish calendar, around the harvest time after it, uh, the Jewish people would live in temporary dwellings for one week. Tabernacles. They were to do this to remember how God had delivered them from Egypt and they dwelled in tents. They were also to do it to rejoice in God's provision in the harvest. So just think about your life. You've been shaped by annual events and seasons in your life. You anticipate them. I mean, living here, we all know what National Day is like and what that day is like when, when, when it's led up to. We're not Muslim, but you know what it is to live here during Ramadan and what a formative period that is in the life of this culture. Events, seasons, rituals shape people. They form people. And for centuries, here's God's people being shaped by going to Jerusalem, physically getting into temporary shelters, to remember and understand who our God is. Can you just imagine the memories of Jewish adults of their childhood doing this? And it's in this whole world of meaning that John writes on the last day of the feast, the great day, a day that meant so much to these original readers. It was the harvest celebration. Uh, one of the rituals on this last great day was a, a well-known water-pouring rite. It was to symbolize the abundance of rain, and it anticipated the abundance God would pour out on his people when the age of the Messiah was ushered in. There would be this elaborate ceremony. Uh, a priest would take a, a golden pitcher. He would walk around, and then he would pour it out uh, on the altar at the temple, and there would be this massive temple choir that would sing Psalms 113 to Psalms 118 about the pilgrimage to Jerusalem. Agrarian people who lived by a harvest cycle, shaped for centuries to expect an age when there would be an abundance of water. They text in their own scriptures that said, Zechariah 13, 1, on that day there shall be a fountain opened for the house of Jerusalem, the, inhabitant, the house of David, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, to cleanse them from their sin and uncleanness. And Jesus, in the midst of this day, and all of the confusion cries out, if anyone thirst, let him come to me and drink. Out of his heart will flow rivers 
of living water. He's applying the entirety of the Old Testament to his person. He speaks of the coming of the Spirit, and he's filling in the meaning of this festival and this water-pouring ritual that had gone on for centuries. He says the abundance of the water you've been shaped to expect, that you've longed for, it's in me. If you thirst, come to me. Notice that with Jesus, his resources are limitless. If anyone thirsts, lavishly generous, because in him there is infinite abundance. He's the source of the water. He satisfies human spiritual thirst. This isn't the first time Jesus has spoken in this way. This is exactly what he was saying to the Samaritan woman in John 4. Whoever drinks of the living water that he offers will never be thirsty again. She was so thirsty. How hard it was for her to see her thirst. Jesus knows how thirsty every human being is. And here he is with lavish generosity saying, come to me and drink. Such abundance in Jesus. Such need in us. He did not come to take from us. He came to give himself to us. Think of that. We add nothing to Jesus. When we praise God, we add nothing to who God is. We do not make him into something that he isn't. We benefit when we give praise to God. In him is everything we need for our soul and satisfaction at the depth and the level that our souls were made for, for which our souls thirst. Do you believe that? Do you compare yourself with other people? You covet what someone else has in this room or not in this room that you don't have? So easy to do that at work. So easy to do that in ministry. You realize that's evidence of a deep thirst in your soul. That you believe, no matter what you say, that you think something else will satisfy your soul. I had that. That was mine. The soul that has been satisfied in its thirst by coming to Jesus Christ is free, wonderfully free to rejoice in their circumstances, in that person's gifts, in the opportunity the Lord gave to them that he said no to, to you. When you're satisfied in Jesus, you're free to be content, to not covet what he hasn't given you. My dear brothers and sisters, Jesus is saying he's enough. He's all. He's sufficient to save you and to satisfy you. And yet we live in a world of thirsty people that refuse to come to him. So thirsty and running after such smaller things that will not quench thirst. What is satisfying your thirst? Accomplishments? Pleasure, power, riches. What is it? What is it? You know, you're running after other things because the, the scriptures make clear this world is under power, the power of sin. 
You were made to be satisfied in the God who's made you. He is good. But you're seeking your satisfaction in other things. So in your sin, you seek to be satisfied in things created and not in the creator. Now, God in his grace would be good if he judged you, if he just let you be satisfied in that. He sent his his son into the world to save you and to satisfy you. That's why he's not been touched. Because salvation would only come through Jesus laying his life down on the cross and being raised from the dead. But because he is true, God raised him. And he's offering to satisfy your thirst if you would come to him. He doesn't say, come work for me. He says, come to me and drink. He means by that, believe in me, repent of whatever else you're looking to to satisfy you and believe in him. With Jesus, you can come to him and drink without any money. Come to Jesus. He will satisfy you. And he has abundant resources to save you. If that's confusing or you want to talk about that, I'd love to talk with you. And there's other people here that would love to do the same. But look at the abundance here. The one who believes out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So overflowing life that comes when the spirit indwells the believer. It begins when the spirit comes to indwell the believer and then it ends in an abundant new world. That's the connection John will make of the new world in Revelation 22 when he speaks of the angel showing him the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing out from God and the Lamb. Jesus did not come to just do a little touch-up paint job. He came to upend the universe, to bring deep, deep transformation to the world in you, in your own conversion, you know, he is slowly but surely, and be confident, he is radically changing you by the Spirit. And one day he's going to radically change and renew the world. And what Jesus won for us, what he secured for us, should blow our minds. The gift of the Spirit. Do not take for granted how different the world is because of the Spirit. How different you are how different you will be because of the Spirit. Think what Spirit is dwelling in you. And then live in the freedom and the privilege of that. He's interceding for you. He's convicting you of sin. He's giving you understanding of what we're reading right now. He's assuring you, you are the fathers. He assures you, you will be raised. The cross is the necessary depth to which Jesus went to satisfy your thirst and to give you the gift of the Spirit. And so Jesus stood up on that last day, the great day, and he was saying, this whole festival is about me. It's me. Holy days are being fulfilled in me, the holy person. Shadows are giving way to substance as the mission of the Son sent by the Father ushers in the age of the Spirit who comes to indwell and to satisfy everyone who comes to drink of Jesus. And yet, verse 40, still confusion. The crowd reacts in such different ways. Some say he's the prophet. Moses predicted others say he's the Christ. 
At that time, they thought that these would be two different people. It was when after he was raised that they started to realize these two different predictions are one in Jesus. Notice they didn't fully know his human origins. They thought, verse 41, he was from Galilee. It's where his family was from. And so then they're ironically clear about what the Scriptures say. The Christ must come from David and from Bethlehem. And so they were divided. They divided over his teaching. They divided over who he was. They're divided over what they should do with him. Some believed. Others wanted him in prison. Ultimately, no one laid their hands on him. And so in this passage, we're finally left with point three, division and deception. Division and deception. Verses 45 to 52. Division and deception. Look at verse 45. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. So throughout this section, verse 29, verse 32, verse 44, they want to arrest him. But Jesus was never arrested. This man that they think is an imposter who deceives the people, who must be in prison, remains free. He is strangely free, isn't he? They're only left to say to the temple officers, why did you not bring him? He's divided the opinion of the crowd. He's a prophet. He's the Messiah. He's divided the temple officers from their own religious bosses. Why didn't they arrest him? Well, his hour had not come. But the only perspective that the officers can offer up is no one ever spoke like this man. It's ironic. They speak far better than they know. They could not have spoken something more true. Instead of putting Jesus in chains, they bore him witness. No one ever spoke like this man because he's the Word incarnate. He is God in the flesh. While heaven and earth will pass away, his Word will not pass away. This hasn't changed. No one, no human court, no religious authority, no government, no person, not even your own mind, no one ever spoke like this man. Whether it's recognized or it's denied by the world, he rules the universe He rules this region. He directs it to where he purposes it all to go. Whose word has authority in your mind? Who or what are you listening to? The truth about the world, the circumstances of your life, your salvation, your eternity really is as Jesus says it is. 
This isn't just the red letter words of the Bible. It's the whole of the scriptures which come with this kind of authority, this inspiration and authority of God. So much in your life is hanging in the balance on what you're doing with the word of God. The word made flesh. Very simply, take God at his word. Believe what Jesus says. Cling to what Jesus says. Someone or something's word is authoritative in your life. Now, if you look back at your last week, who was authoritative in your life? For the students here, I urge you, I urge you not to put off putting God's word in your heart and in your mind. And the best way for you to be ready to go into the world is to store up God's word. Make effort in that like you do at other things. Fathers, how are we doing leading our families in God's word? How are we leading our wives in God's word? Do we need to today or this week confess to our families that we have failed to lead them? The world is leading. Are we leading? Let's take intentional steps next week to do this. No one ever spoke like this man. Do what it take to take in his word. His word is satisfying. His word is powerful. He did not become the word incarnate to enslave you, but to free you. He satisfies thirsty people. No one ever spoke like this man. This is the satisfying way to live in this world. And yet there's irony here. The Pharisees, so sure that the temple officers had been deceived, they say, verse 48, None of the authorities, none of the Pharisees have believed in him, at least that they know of. They think they are the judges of true religion. They think they will have no problem discerning who the Messiah is when he comes. They think that this crowd, these commoners, cannot understand the law. And so they're not just divided from the temple officers, they're divided from this crowd. Verse 49, the crowd does not know the law. They're cursed And yet, if they knew the law, they would know this is the one to whom the law was pointing. From where? From whom does he come? It has not even crossed their minds that it's not the temple officers or the crowd that's been deceived. It's them. By their own pride, by their own self-righteousness, they're dying of thirst. And they seek petty substitutes to satisfy their thirst. But unknown to them, there was a Pharisee a teacher of Israel, no less, who had gone to Jesus at night and he left Jesus in the darkness. But something was going on with Nicodemus. He reminds the Pharisees who pride themselves in knowing the law what their law says. A man must have a hearing. You must hear his side. These keepers of the law want to lawlessly kill Jesus. And notice they don't even respond to the merits of what Nicodemus says. They pridefully belittle him. Him who had some rank among them. Never be surprised by how far pride will take you away from life. Though it's a terrible battle, resist pride, especially young men. 
pursue humility at every chance you get. The low road of humility is the pathway to joy. Get on it and cling to the cross to stay on it. They're pridefully dismissing Nicodemus. They're pridefully and ignorantly dismissing Jesus. No prophet arises from Galilee. Now, Jonah did. Elijah may have. Nahum may have. So they're either purposely distorting the facts or they really are ignorant of their own word and law. Were they ignorant of the fact that Jesus was born in Bethlehem? They certainly didn't want to see who he was. They remain confused. Worse than deceived, they are divided from the officers of the crowd, but they are ultimately divided from Jesus. The one whom they should have been rejoicing was among them. They opposed in every way. But here, because of Nicodemus, there's not just division and deception. There is a surprising delay. The hour has not come, but division remains. What ultimately divides, what will ultimately divide the world is Jesus. Which makes me think how much more precious and sweet the unity we know among us. Even in our many divisions, by His grace, He's given us the Spirit. Divided from Him, but by faith now united to Him. Think of that privilege. To so many, He was a mystery. Even a source of confusion has clearly revealed Himself to you and given you His Spirit. And so in Jesus, we have everything we need. No one ever spoke like this man. And no one satisfies any thirsty soul that comes to him and drinks.